Where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. Yeah, Liz is a true intellectual. She's drawn to the biggest of questions, the biggest of historical questions. She's not going to be content doing a kind of small micro project. She's energetic, super curious, always asking questions about all sorts of things. Voracious reader, never stops wanting to learn. She's also an excellent teacher. You just heard the voice of Kyle Volk, professor of history, talking about his student, Elizabeth Bars one of the Bertha Morton Graduate Student Scholarship winners for 22-23. This episode is part of a series recognizing the achievements of some of our outstanding graduate students. The Bertha Morton Award, named for a great Montanan who dedicated her life to public service, was endowed to support graduate students by recognizing the distinctive contributions they make in research, creative activity, and public service. In this episode, we talk with Elizabeth about her journey to the graduate program in history after a 20-plus year career as an Army military officer, but also the validation at winning the Richard Drake Writing Award in 2022 for a chapter of her dissertation on aid to Armenia during the infamous genocide. We discuss the complex interweaving of American foreign policy, aid work by nonprofit organizations, and the for-profit industries like agribusiness that form the triad of relief work over the early to mid-20th century. We're proud to share her graduate story with listeners. Enjoy the float. Welcome to Confluence, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So we're celebrating Bertha Morton winners. So yes. we'll just start by talking a little bit about that. Does that award have any special resonance for you? You know, it really does. It was a great honor. I was incredibly um, fortunate to be selected. And it does. You know, reading her story, it's amazing that this woman who worked hard her whole life treasured education so much that she gave to, you know, this for this scholarship. And and, you know, as, as a non-traditional older, much older student. Um, much older. Much Come older. On, let's yeah, not yeah, exaggerate. Yeah, well, you know, I feel it every day. No, but, you know, but really when I, um, when I retired from my last career, you know, what I wanted to do most was go back and, and you know, get my PhD and, and get back into academia. And, you know, because I, especially at that point in my life, treasured uh, education much more than I did perhaps as an undergraduate yeah. a long time ago. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that she, you know, saved and, and worked hard, but then took her, her, you know, her money basically and, and put it into other people's educational dreams, I thought was just incredibly, incredibly rich story. Yeah, it's a story you don't hear a ton anymore too, that it was, um, nobody had cultivated her. This right? came out of nowhere. I know. You know it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, and you know, that used to be a little bit more common that I think, I don't, you know, I, I always feel like the back in my day guy these days. I'm getting older myself, right? But but it seemed like there was an ethic of service yeah. that was that people saw institutions as something to invest in, and yeah. that they had this longer term value. And of course, Montana wouldn't exist if farmer University of Montana wouldn't exist if farmers in the 19th century hadn't said yeah. super important to have a university, you know. Yeah. And so I always like to make that message clear that 
institutions have this history of we invest in them because we their continuity and mm -hmm. their ability to connect us to the past um, are important to maintain. So yeah. that's part of it for me is, is for the birth of the story. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely, and you know, obviously, you know, as a as a in the history department, obviously, I, I tried to research more about her his personal history because I was so interested. I wondered, you know, did she want to go to school but couldn't because mm -hmm. she had to support herself, and was this her way of saying, you know, I want others who want to go to school to be able to do this? And I couldn't find a lot of a lot of detail about her, but yeah, it, it really does resonate again as someone who's gone back to school. Yeah, well, so let's talk about that. How, what's your Montana story? How did you end up here in the history department at UM? Well, uh, so I. So I was an active duty uh, army officer for 21 years, and I retired uh, in 2008. And so I had connections to Montana through family and basically moved here in 2014 to, uh, and my, my two sons were still pretty young and, you know, promised them that we'd no longer keep moving with the military, wanted, especially my older one, to be able to go to, you know, one high school. Um, he'd moved so much in the military. So yeah, we, I've, I'd always loved Montana, had visited for, you know, a couple decades before that. And so, yeah, we moved here in 2014 and very typical of veterans, which is another thing I, I work with. You know, you have to sort of recreate yourself when you leave the military at, whether it's, you know, 25 or 35, or in my case, uh, you know, I was about 42, I think. Anyway, so yeah. Um, so you've had this life that had so much structure yeah, exactly. and so much direction and everything is kind of, the choices, it's not that there's no choices, but they're kind of structured yeah. choices. And then all of a sudden you're out in the world and you're trying to figure out what's next. Exactly. You know, exactly. And so many young people do that when they're 18 or 19 or 22, they're out of high school or college. But um, a lot for a lot of people in the military, you have to sort of figure out what you want to be when you grow up, when you're much older. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, moved here on the... And, and I really wanted to go back to school. Um, a dream had always been to get my PhD. So yeah, I, I applied and the history department here is wonderful. And so I went back to school. Yeah. And so you have, uh, you have an interesting background. You had political science as an undergraduate, you did an MA in education. And so now you're in history and the transition, a lot of what we like to talk about in the grad school yeah. podcast is, you know, what is it, what is the transition of level mean? What does it mean to go from an undergraduate uh, master's and then from a master's to a PhD? And, you know, that, that you kind of sense, I mean, I'm a, an athletic background, but, you mm -hmm. know, you reach a different level and all of a sudden there's a different set of expectations. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it is. And it is. And especially when you've done, I did my bachelor's so long ago, you know, it was decades ago. And so it was not only transitioning, um, you know, from that background and also, you know, we do it, military education has a, we, we, you go to school constantly. So you, you are in school a lot. But it's much more professional focused. Right. For so for me, it was not only the fact that my my BA had been so long ago, but also I was switching from having been a political science, international studies, much more of that background into history. Mm -hmm. So it, what was fantastic about our department is that my mentors there, um, my advisors, really helped me with that because it's a it's a very different way of researching and of of looking. So understanding how to do archival research, how to look. Um, you know, how to research with primary documents and, and just approaching um, research from historians' perspective as opposed to more of a social science, in this case, political science perspective. So, yeah, very, I, had, I learned lots of not only content, but lots of new skills in terms of as a learner. Yeah, and history as a discipline has that extra problem, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's stranded a little bit between its social science methodologies <laughs> yeah. and its humanities methodologies. But on the back end, 
good history is also going to tell a story, yes. right? It's not going to just be, you know, it's going to be grounded in the archive, but it's going to have a story to tell. And so that bit requires writing and it requires it, having something to say. It does. And uh, yeah, and I, again, it does. And wonder, I think what's great about our department is we are smaller than some of these huge history departments at other places. So we get that mentorship and, and my advisors particularly really focus on that narrative, narrative history. We don't want to I mean, and, and quantitative history is important too. You need statistics and you need that type of history. But I think my my approach and, and what I've been mentored in is so wonderful in 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 making history come alive for the reader. It's not shouldn't be it should be something accessible. Uh, we have a public history uh, program here as well. But history should be accessible to people who really want to understand these stories from the past. And that, you're absolutely right, you have to be able to write well, not just, you know, collect data. So, yeah. It's- well, and you're, you're the recent recipient of the Richard Drake Writing Award, which, you know, I've been on that committee for years. And, um, you know, it's we take seriously the writing. You know, in other words, that it's a very serious part of the criteria, that it's not just you're wowing us with great ideas, but it's composed. And that really does reflect uh, Drake's legacy, right? I mean, he is such a, a fantastic writer and takes that part he of his is. work so seriously. So that must have been kind of a nice honor. It was an incredible honor. I, I absolutely respect um, Professor Drake so much, and I've you know been able to um, you know obviously know him through the history department. Yeah, it was a wonderful honor. I was I put a, a paper I had written, in, which will form a chapter of my dissertation, and it was a great honor because, you know, you, you don't know. You know, I, I write and you rewrite and you edit and you rewrite and you hope you write well, but to, to receive that honor was wonderful. Well, let's talk about the paper itself because that okay. sounds kind of fun. What, what's it on? What, what's the topic? And how does it relate to this bigger dissertation yeah. project that you're working on? Yeah, I, you know, be careful asking someone. I'll go on forever about my research. But no, so this was when I was trying to figure out again what I wanted to do for a dissertation. And I didn't, because of my military background, I didn't want to necessarily um, do military history just because I wanted to do something different. Try something different, yeah. Yeah, and my, my husband actually has worked in aid work his whole life. He's done, worked in aid work all over the world. And I was reading Samantha Power's book at one point, and this was right when I had gone back to school, and it was this part of, in for books about Near East Relief. It was the main American aid organization uh, that supported victims of the Armenian genocide at, after World War One, primarily. So... I was really fascinated by this because I'd never heard of this relief group. You know, you hear about the big ones. You hear about CARE and Catholic Relief and and Mercy Corps and others. So anyway, I I started researching this group, Near East Relief, and just it was such a compelling uh, history. And I thought at the time that I would write much about, I was very interested as a, you know, with my background, I was very interested in the sort of the diplomatic history, you know, how to aid organizations overseas work in terms of American power abroad. And that is still a, a, a part of my, of the dissertation. But what I really became fairly fascinated with very quickly is every time I looked up anything in primary sources about Near East Relief, I would see Caro syrup ads. Hmm. Yeah, believe it or not, you know, or, or Borden milk ads. And what quickly became apparent was that you know, even nonprofits still need you know revenue. Revenue. Some kind. They're yeah, still businesses. Yeah. They still need to have injects either of donations or of good relationships with businesses to get good deals. So this Near East Relief was was feeding at the time you know tens and tens of thousands of orphans primarily in the Near East, everywhere from the Caucasus down to Egypt. 
Well, they needed foodstuffs. They needed to feed these horrible, you know, these traumatically, you know, affected children. And so they were making a very strong relationships with a lot of food companies, American farmers, as well as processed foods. And so what what grew from that was this chapter very much about how uh, Near East Relief and uh, worked with some of these, as particularly in some extent farmers, but particularly some processed food uh, manufacturers, because these were fattening foods. Caro um, syrup is a fattening food. And in the news right now with formula. That was yeah. one of the original baby formulas. That's was, what I was just thinking. What yeah. an interesting resonance with today with this this problem in our supply chain exactly. on baby formula. Yeah. And that and, must have been in the in the pardon the pun, infancy of <laughs> the massive American agribusiness too, right? I mean, in other words, we're talking about the twenties, twenties and early thirties. Um, you know, American agribusiness was growing, but it must it didn't have, of course, the market penetration it does today. Right. So were the businesses also vested in other words in in finding these markets yes. in, in foreign yeah. So yeah, it was a little bit of everything. Part of it was was um, a lot of these processed food industries were growing in the 1920s. Um, absolutely, and marketing was growing. The marketing business took off. You know, advertising really took off, especially during and after World War One. So yes, these these food industries were trying to make inroads into foreign markets. So, you know, let's, if we give a taste for evaporated milk overseas, then children, you know, they'll buy more evaporated milk. But it was also convincing American consumers that the, their products were healthy. Mm. So the, the focus of this chapter that I was uh, fortunate to receive the, the uh, Professor Drake Award for is very much about how, because Near East Relief was using corn syrup, for example, to feed starving children overseas, that they could mar- that the corn products manufacturers could market it as healthy for American children. Mm. So it's not a cynical; it's not meant to be a cynical story of marketing. But these are symbiotic relationships. Sure. Yeah. Near East Relief, who did amazing work overseas, needed support. And the corn products industry needed someone to say, hey, our products are healthy. So it was a... And of course, this is, you know, we now are on the back end where we're th- we think about, um, you know, king corn and the yeah, problems exactly. with the agribusiness. So we would we would approach it cynically. But at the time, <laughs> it's a different, you it know, is. it's a different era, you know, when but but you're still you're kind of describing a, a kind of quintessentially American story of yeah. the kind of ways in which, again, soft power projection, yeah. but also our economic and our agricultural heartland are kind of being brought together. Exactly, exactly. The larger project, the larger dissertation is really about these porous boundaries between for-profits, non-profits, and the state. So, um, you know, the, the, the role of, of non-profit organizations in, the, in U.S. history and the American political economy, and in this case, of food. So not only how it works within the United States political economy of food, and then how we've projected that overseas to really affect how the entire planet eats. I mean, part of that um, has really, a large part of that has really been done through our aid work overseas, exporting not just foodstuffs, but our agricultural practices. So later chapters get more into that. And the Green Revolution, you know, is, is a big part of that mass mass industrial farming. So it comes, your decision comes far enough forward to encompass the Green Revolution. And, it does. And that's hugely important. You have not just the, um, the agriculture, Technology, technology, but you also have all the machine work that goes exactly. with that. In other words, to do that high in- intensity farming, you have to have mechanized yeah. uh, agriculture, and that we d- we do that 
at an industrial scale here, and unlike mm-hmm. anyone but maybe Russia and the Ukraine, speaking yeah. of things that are back in the news, Rod- that the, the Russian blockade of the ports is going to have a huge impact on the food market here in the next right. six months. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just in the news now, I keep, you know, tr- tuning in and, you know, now talking about some of the wor- worst food crises uh, since, at least in, you know, part, large parts of the world since uh, World War II. Um, and the World War One and World War II, the food crises at the ends of those wars drove so much of globe, changed so much globally about how food is made and consumed. Um, so, yeah. So there's something there conceptually about kind of war and disaster and, and violence as uh, drivers of change, because now all of a sudden you have to solve a big problem at a large scale, and that's going to impact, uh, you know, all the systems that, that interact with it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, war is such a huge driver of change in across, you know, societies. But yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, I think um, all this, you know, this played out across m- my dissertation focuses from the early 1900s till about the 1970s. Um, and but, you know, it can, the story continues across. There's ideas now of, of, of countries wanting more food sovereignty. In other words, they don't want to be exported, you know, necessarily other countries, American, you know, food practices. They want more sustainable agriculture. So, yeah, it, it, it definitely resonates every day today. Fantastic. And so you'll be completing that in the next year or so? <laughs> yes, I hope so. You know, one thing, uh, being a history graduate student or, you know, right now, the pandemic has really um, interrupted us because we have to go to archives. You know, our our bread and butter as researchers is to get into archives and, and they all shut down for almost over two years, most of them. I still... Uh, most of the archives that I need to get into um, are just now opening. So, yeah, I'm hoping... And of course, life and work and things get in right. the way of of, yeah. of dissertation work. But yes, my. But you've made recent archival trips. Yes, I have. A couple more on the horizon. A couple more on the horizon. Yeah, I have about a chapter and a half left to write, and uh, some major research which the Bertha Morton is very much helping with. Um, so I have I've just gotten back from the National Archives a couple weeks ago, um, and I'll be spending time at a, several different archives this summer. Fantastic. Yeah. And then when you wrap up, where do we think we're headed uh, post-PhD? You know, that is a great question. I would love to teach. Uh, and, you know, those, you know, the, the market for history um, professors, you know, is is interesting. And I'll learn more <laughs> about that. Is, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> In the Chinese uh <laughs> cursed sense. May you live in interesting times. Exactly. Humanity scholars, you know, we all have our challenges. I I would love to teach. Uh, I would love to research more and write. So honestly, um, I don't know. And I still have, uh, you know, three kids at home that need to get to college and go through college. So uh, looking at, you know, tuition and and where they're going to go to school. So as a, yeah, as a working parent, trying to navigate my own career and taking care of, you know, helping with the family and, and getting kids through college. Yeah, we'll see. Um, it's a lot of juggle. So it's a bit of juggle, um, but I would love to, I, I want to, I want to teach and I want to stay in the history world. Um, I also, you know, work at UM and have a wonderful job. So we'll see if I can mesh those, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you for joining us on Confluence. Well, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. If you like what you've heard, you've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. 
We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana or click a link at the Confluence website, www.umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float. And I'll wash that. Mm-hmm. And say it, and say it. From Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs>